the exhortations of 19 to 25 are reinforced in 26 to 31 by some rather somber warnings. So, somebody want to read 26 to 31? For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 26 is an interesting twist on what he's been saying all along. What has he been saying all along that sort of sounds like verse 26? Maybe the sacrifice persons? Well, yeah, but just one. And so that there's not any, any further sacrifice. Look back at verse 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. But when he said in verse 18 that there's no longer any offering for sin, that's because... There was forgiveness. And therefore, another offering for sin is not needed. But that's a two-edged sword. Here he's saying that no further sacrifice is available. There's no other sacrifice for sin than the one Jesus gave. That's all we need, unless we reject it. If we reject Christ's sacrifice, then what next plan of redemption does God have for us? None. So that's a rather serious thing. In fact, extremely critical thing that we have no other sacrifice. If we if we go on sinning willfully, we reject the sacrifice of Christ, then what can we look forward to? Fearful expectation of judgment. <laughs> and it doesn't sound like something we would want at all. You know, that's a very strong statement. And what he does, it's kind of interesting. He's been comparing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, all through this, talking about how much greater and better the blessings in the New Covenant are, the sacrifice of the New Covenant, the priesthood of the New Covenant, etc. And now what do we learn? What also is bigger in the New Covenant? The judgment. Because you would be rejecting something greater. You know, he says, if, you know, you set aside the law of Moses. The penalty is death without mercy by two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and is insulted the Spirit of grace? You think that punishment was severe, how much greater punishment there would be to... Uh, insult and trample underfoot and ignore so much greater sacrifice and greater blessings. When there are greater privileges, there is greater judgment. 
And, and wow, you think about some of the punishments in the Old Testament. You know, how with two or three witnesses you were stoned, if you did any variety of things. And even some of the punishments God just took into his own hands in the Old Testament. Remember any severe punishments God uh, executed in the Old Testament? Uzzah. Uzzah. What happened to him? Struck dead. And uh, remember anybody else struck dead in the Old Testament? Nadab and Abihu come to mind. Fire from heaven came down and consumed them. And a variety of other things that you can see where God severely punished sin even under the covenant that was less valuable. That was less uh, awesome. So, don't think we'll escape. We certainly will not. God will punish. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So he's saying we must do what he says in 19 to 25 because if we don't, it's it's unspeakably horrible what we have to face. Should we be motivated by a fear of punishment? It's a motivation for sure. And it seems to me like if it weren't, he wouldn't use it. I mean, I understand and I agree with the fact that love is a stronger motivation and we should grow to love God to the point where that we would serve Him even if there were no punishment. And that perhaps love keeps us even more dedicated. But the fear of punishment is a legitimate motivation because it's a true fact. It is true. that if we ignore the sacrifice of Christ and go on sinning willfully, this is what will happen. And, and, you know, if we get too, too, I don't know, refined and, you know, sophisticated, we may come to think that, well, you know, fear of punishment is just a really, you should never try to murder anybody with that. Well, the Bible does on a number of occasions. So it is an appropriate thing to think about. And uh, it's a reality. I mean, you know, it would be foolish not to consider the punishment that will come if we neglect these things. Thoughts and comments? That pretty much says it the way it is, doesn't it? <laughs> Do you, and it you know, he goes, he, in verse 29, he goes to quite a, a description here about the... Uh, the person who disregards Christ's sacrifice in, in describing, you know, exactly what's being done. Uh, has there been something else already in this book where he did something similar? Where he, he describes something yeah. in great detail? It seems like we talked well, about Well, what about, like, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6? Maybe that's not quite Yes, that was it. That was it. been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, been partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God. The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. When you think about how wonderful what God has given, then to neglect that, to, to, you know, turn away from that, to rebel against that, is even more terribly criminal. We see that. You would think that same thing. You know, every every criminal is bad. But 
you do not blame as strongly somebody for stealing who was born in deep poverty, who's been totally neglected and abused, and you know, you give all these circumstances, they're still wrong, they still need to be punished, but compare that with some spoiled brat who's had everything possible, who has it all, and goes around and tries to steal. Don't you feel differently when somebody has had so much more? And even couple that with really loving parents and a wonderful family and, you know, it's everything, both physically and, and emotionally and, and all that. And you see somebody like that and you just want to strangle them. You've had everything. What in the world are you thinking? And I think that's the way the Lord is. When he's given us so much through Christ, we neglect that. We ignore that. We turn away from that. Wow. There's just no words to describe how horrible that is or how much punishment that deserves. And and I, I, I'm not trying to... I mean, I don't think the only motivation is punishment. I, I, be, I certainly believe that we need to love God and that becomes stronger for us. But I, we have been so blessed. We, in every way. Wow. I mean, we have... Just so many physical blessings that, wow, I mean, you know, there's no way to even measure them. We are so blessed. I mean, not just with material blessings, which we have in incredible abundance, but in many other kinds of ways. We live in a very convenient, comfortable, free, enjoyable society and all that. And then we've been blessed with so much opportunity to know the Lord. I mean, think about it. I mean, we have lights and we have, everyone has a copy of the Bible and we have good teachers that we've heard and good Christians we're around and just so much to build us up. So much that has just encouraged us. We need to take a more serious look at the responsibilities that these privileges give us. When we let ourselves off the hook, too easily because we sort of feel sorry for ourselves. You know, it's just been really hard. You know, I've had a really hard day. And, you know, there's a lot of problems in my life. And, you know, you just can't really expect me to do that well. For crying out loud. You know? We have so much. In every sense, we need to challenge ourselves. We need to be tough on ourselves. Because definitely that principle of to whom much is given, much is required is taught in many ways in the Bible. Other comments? Look at the next section, 32 to 39. But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, <clears throat> partly by being made a public spectacle, through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, <clears throat> for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which was a great reward, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, 
my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the person uh, preserving of the soul. Well, he is strongly calling upon them to persevere and to press forward, not to draw back like you've just seen. And he motivates them with several things. In 32 to 34, what's he talking about? He's reminding them of their trials and tribulations of the past. <clears throat> Very much so. What all have they gone through already? Sufferings, the public spectacle, and tribulations, and sympathy for prisoners, and having the property seized. Why does he remind them all of all of this? My guess is that was a very committed time for them. That was a time when, even though it was tough, they really were um, uh, strong in their, in their commitment to God. That's a good point. And sometimes that's what we need to remember is when we really were fervent and sacrificial in our service to God. I think there's another point why he would remind them of this. Well, he's getting ready to tell them to endure, to keep enduring. If they've already been through so much, they can keep keep on keeping on. They can, and I think this motivates you to. Don't abandon something that you've already invested so much in. Look at how much they've already suffered. You know, wow. Keep, keep going in that. It is impressive what they have gone through. I think we can relate to some of verse 33 a little bit, on, but on a much lesser scale. You know, being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Can, you know, have you ever really been laughed at and been just publicly ridiculed and shamed? I mean, I haven't nearly like they have. I've corresponded with somebody recently who's in high school who's talked to me about just some of how they feel around some of the kids and how hard that is for them. And it just brings back the memories of how really hard it was for me emotionally in high school it wasn't like this, but it felt like this. You know, because, you know, when you're a Christian, then, I mean, I can remember how they would just constantly be taking everything I said and twisting it, to try to make it something sexual or something like that. Because they knew that embarrassed me. They knew that I wasn't like that. And so I couldn't say anything that they didn't come back with something and try to, to me, ridicule me with it. And, you know... I mean, even at that, that's pretty minor compared to this, but that hurt terribly. You know, he says, you made, were made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. I guess whatever persecution they received, you know, they were just kind of on public display as being disgraced and ashamed because of their faith. That would have been hard. And, uh, 
you know, evidently some of them uh, were imprisoned and, and they showed sympathy with that. And, and then they accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Can you imagine that? To just have your stuff taken because you're a Christian? I mean, they come to you and they say, you renounce Christ or your car is ours. You know, your house is ours. You know, we're going to confiscate your bank account. You know, your 401k or whatever. Wow. How would you feel if that happened for the cause of Christ? Something other than joyful? Poor. Poor? How could you accept that joyfully? Take a lot of faith. Could you do that even with that? I mean, look at all you're losing. Love for the Father. What did they think? They thought they had a greater reward. So I think a lot of faith is exactly the point. I mean, they really, they just look forward even more to the abiding possessions that could not be taken away from them. I think we'd struggle so much with that. We have such this strong view of, you know, our possessions. (laughs) You know, this, this right of private property is very strong in America. And, you know, this is mine. And it would just be wrong for somebody to take it. They have no right to do that. And I think we'd be horrified. We'd be embittered. They joyfully accepted that. Small sacrifice to serve the Lord. <laughs> What comments and thoughts do you have on 32 to 34? Wouldn't they have been thrown out of synagogues because of their accepting Christ and following Him? Would that, would that have been a part of their uh, public spectacle? Could have the, been. Yeah, certainly. Which kind of ostracizes them from society. Yeah. And from their own families in a lot of cases. Which happens today. Is it easy to serve God? Is it easy to be a Christian? That's a trick question. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes we, I think, feel like to go through these kinds of things would just be unthinkable. You know, it's not unthinkable. It may cost us a lot. Not really when you compare it like they were, but but I mean, may we have, may we need to be exposed to ridicule, imprisonment, unlawful seizure of our stuff, or whatever? Absolutely. Does God have the right to expect us to go through things like that? Of course. And so much more. I think we need a just a stronger, you know, willingness to go through, you know, whatever. However bad it is. 
you know, and, and I'm just ashamed of how much, you know, I am quiet about the Lord just because I don't want to look stupid. <laughs> you know, wow. Or how much I tend to feel sorry for myself because I'm discouraged over this, or this didn't go well, or whatever. <laughs> never, I've never gone through anything difficult. <laughs> Thoughts and comments through 34. It's interesting that it wasn't just these things happening to them, that they were almost volunteering to stand up with the others. Yes. They were not ashamed of the ones who went through those things, which would be very hard, very easy to kind of shrink back from them because you don't want to get it also. And they, they were right there with their brethren who were suffering those things. I like that. You know, it seems to me that, personally in my life, that it seems like we think about ourselves too much. That we think, you know, how bad will I be looked at as? How much, how much scorn will I get? Do we really have the willingness, like you said, to accept what God has us do, no matter what it does? To us? You know, God de- deserves our devotion. He deserves it. Why not give it to them? It's not all about us. It's about how we can serve God. Amen. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You know, hang in there and press forward. Endure. You know, there's this danger of Shrinking back and not pressing on. And he's saying, don't do that. Remain faithful. You know, just endure so that you can receive the promises. Do the will of God. And uh, I think this is so much the appeal of the book. That that we need to to hold on firm until the end. You know, I think about passages like 3.6. You know, if we, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. And 3.14, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And this is what he's saying here, really. Push forward and endure and don't shrink back. You know, if you shrink back, you'll be destroyed. Press forward and endure. We sometimes start and then we're tempted to give up. Don't give up. I don't care how bad it gets. I don't care how much the sacrifice is. Press forward. You know, because you'll be able to receive a great reward. It's worth it. This is his impassioned plea to them. Really strong, strong teachings. Comments. whole idea of confidence, assurance seems to be another one of those repeated themes throughout this letter that's just great. I mean, to couple that with hope. Uh, it, that's what enables you to endure when the times are rough. If you didn't have that confidence and assurance, you'd have nothing to bolster you in those times. To me, you know, a section like this, 35 to 39 especially, is almost the nucleus of the book. I think this is almost what this is really saying. 
you know, if you wanted to title this book, uh, I'd be fine with, uh, you know, Don't Shrink Back. You know, that's really what this is all about. Press forward, endure, if you want to say that positively. Now he ends verse 39 by saying, we're of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul, which is the uh, bridge to the next chapter. Uh, Talking about the faith that we have to the saving of the soul, explaining what it means and illustrating it and and, and, uh, motivating and inspiring us with these great examples of faith. So anything you want to say about chapter 10 before we move on to it? I liked what you said about this section being so key, and I just love the way he ends that in verse 39. I mean, it's it's not a it's not uh, it's not negative. It's not um, uh, chastising. It is it is uh, a confidence booster. I mean, he's just telling them this is not the way we are. But we are the one. We are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Amen. I mean, they had to look at that, and I think, and we should too, and say, we can do it. Amen. Amen. He consistently warns them strongly, but he ends up on the side of confidence in them that they will endure. There's there's a lesson for us. Yes. When we've got hard things to say to somebody, how do we finish it up? Do we just leave it hanging there with, you know, kind of uh, them wondering, where do I go next? And I think this is great. I agree. All right, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Now this kind of sets the stage for what he's going to say. By the word, by the way, the word faith occurs more often in Hebrews than any other book in the New Testament. Maybe that's not a big surprise, but it does. And he kind of explains it here. He gives sort of, I don't know, a definition, that's a fine term for me, that he's going to illustrate in the rest of this chapter. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Really, I think the idea of faith is the foundation of our hope. I think that's the idea. Literally, it's what stands under our hope. Our hope is built on our faith. Because we don't see the things we hope for. It's the trust and faith we have that... um, that undergirds the hope. It's 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 what it's what you know gives support and and a firm footing to our hope. If you didn't have faith, hope would just be kind of an unrealistic dream. You know, I'd sure like this to be true. But I don't think it will be. It's the faith that is the foundation that our hope's built on, and faith is the conviction of things not seen. Now. That's an interesting thing, because think about how our conviction usually comes. 
you are usually convicted by heart. Yes. That's based upon what? Things you can see. Absolutely. Concrete evidence. Tomorrow I ask you, you know, was Andrew in the study last night? You say yes. I say, how do you know? I saw him. That's the normal way we have conviction about something. We see it. We, we, we witness it. And therefore we have confidence and conviction that it's true. But faith is what gives us conviction of things we don't see. Faith based upon God's word, based upon our trust and confidence in what he says, causes us to have conviction, even though we haven't seen it, and to be willing to act on that, to be willing to launch out and make decisions because we have confidence in what God says. So that's what faith is. It's a foundation that stands under our hope, and it's the conviction that we have about unseen things. And then in verse 2, the reward of faith is God's approval. So that's a real... That's a sort of a summary of what he's going to start illustrating for us in these next few verses. Do you have comments and questions? I'm willing to. Definitions are always sort of difficult, but I think we'll see it best by seeing how this is used. So, the beginnings of faith. 3 through 7. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts through faith, though Though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his taking, his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Alright. We see faith in creation in verse 3. We understand what by faith? Made everything out of nothing. Yes, out of things we can't see. So how do we know he made them out of those things? He said so. It's our faith. Exactly. I haven't seen it. Anybody see creation? Anybody seen the raw materials? Things that were invisible? No. But we believe it because of our faith. Our faith gives us substance to what we have conviction about. You know, we haven't seen, but but our faith is what gives us that, that confidence. In verse 4, what did Abel do by faith? Sacrifice, a better sacrifice than Cain. Yes, exactly. 
based upon what God said, based upon, you know, his relationship with God, and his confidence in God, he offers a better sacrifice. And God testifies about his faith that he, though he's dead, still speaks. You know, he he teaches us, he speaks to us about the value of serving God by faith, even though he's dead. Which is kind of a contrast with verse 5, don't you think? Abel speaks as one who is dead. What about Enoch? He speaks as one who didn't die. (laughs) You've got both sides of the coin. But Enoch, um, we know that he had faith. How do we know he had faith? The word of God said he did. Well, yeah, right here. Because he was taken up. <laughs> yes. Because he was taken up. Back in Genesis 5, he walked with God. That means God was pleased with him. Can God be pleased with you if you don't have faith? Therefore, Enoch must have done this by faith. That's kind of his point. Um... So you've got examples of Abel, who serves God by faith and still speaks though he's dead. Enoch still speaks though he's never though he never died, because he clearly had faith. After all, he walked with God. God was pleased with him. Um, and then Noah. And and Noah is perhaps one of the uh, more concrete examples of the this definition. What did God tell Noah to do? Why? Flood was coming. Now, had Noah ever seen a universally destructive flood? No. Did he have scientific or historical evidence to prove that there would be a universally destructive flood? No. So what's he doing going out there building an ark? God said it, and he has faith, conviction about something he had not seen. He was warned by God about things not yet seen, and he he had conviction, therefore he acted upon it. Therefore he built that boat and showed he was a man of faith because he trusted God's word, even though he'd never seen it. That's a really powerful example. You know, because there are many things God asks us to do that we cannot confirm by observation. We cannot confirm by science, by history, by anything other than God said it. And if we have faith, then we have conviction, whether we've seen it or not, and we act on that conviction. Comments and questions? This passage doesn't seem to separate in any way Enoch from at least the others who are mentioned as having faith. I agree. Uh, do you have you ever thought whether his being taken up spoke to his being different from others who had faith? I guess it's total speculation, but it does make it does make me wonder. Uh, 
about him. At least, at least it confirms. It certainly talking. confirms God being pleased with him, and in fact, he's a man of faith. I don't know. I mean, it may be one of these uh, John 21 deals. What if, what if I will that he carry until I come? What is that to, to you? You know, I mean, it, you know, God may do one thing for one man of faith and something else for another man of faith. Well, know that it necessarily proves Enoch was better. It certainly proves, though, that God was pleased with Enoch. Were they looking for Enoch? It says he wasn't found. <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, my dad disappeared. I started looking for him. Well, they looked for Elijah. They did. You're right about that. We know that. We all remember him looking for Enoch. <laughs> you just do not have a lot of information about Enoch. <clears throat> studying Jude, where Enoch is mentioned and quoted. It's not a lot about him, so I don't know. He was spared the seeing the people of the world going even further away from God, as happened right before the flood. Maybe his righteousness and his taking away was just to spare him from having to see all that led up to the flood. Could be. Yeah, could be. You know the uh, my dad's little thing, you know, Enoch was the oldest man that ever lived, but he died before his father did. Actually, Methuselah. Yeah, I got that wrong. And I'll try that again. Methuselah was the oldest man who ever lived, but he died before his father did. That wasn't original with dad, was it? No, probably not original with him, but he's who I heard say it all the time. Because uh, his father was Enoch, and Enoch didn't die. Uh, Methuselah may have died in the year of the flood. Uh, best we can figure out if chronologies are complete. Uh, but Enoch, his father, did not. So. It's amazing how many of the patriarchs were still alive during, you know, all together at the same time. Yes, unless we assume there may be missing generations in the genealogy. I don't know what to say about that. Uh, I think it's possible. There are some things you could argue on various sides of all that. But I don't think we're necessarily locked into that being a complete genealogy. Certainly many genealogies were incomplete. We know that. That was just, that was fine. I mean, they just, you know, wasn't a lie. It just, you don't have to give all the steps. So, I don't know. Yeah, otherwise, wasn't Adam still alive and Noah was born? No, I don't think so, was it? Or Methuselah. Maybe like Methuselah, yeah. I don't think I don't think it made Adam alive when when Noah was born. Methuselah most definitely would have died there. Yeah, well, but Adam was still been around Methuselah. I think that may be the case. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I'd have to go back and look. But again, you know, it just depends on that assumption, and I have no idea. What was the one kind of creation you see in the head Methuselah? Remember the display of Methuselah, and in their interpretation of it, he was—he died before the flood, and he was supposedly a good man. But it doesn't—I don't think it gives us any indication of that either. No. Do you remember that? Yeah. <coughs> no, there's no way to know that. Right. So they took that liberty. Yeah. 
I really like the next section, which is actually a long section, but we'll break it up. Uh, Dealing with Abraham and the patriarchs. Uh, Really 8 to 22, but let's just look at it a step at a time. So 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham would call to go to a place he would later receive as as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Yes. What does Abraham do here? Up and went. Went where? No. Yes. <laughs> Do you up and leave not knowing where you're going? Here's faith. He's not seen it, doesn't even know where it is, but based upon God's word, he has the conviction and the confidence to leave and to go. I think that's a very impressive thing about his faith. He's not so concerned about his circumstances, his surroundings, he acts based upon his trust in God. And uh, they didn't have good ways to maintain constant contact with back home like we did. He may never, ever have gone back there. Just leaves. God said to leave. I'll show you where I'm taking you as we go. That takes trust in God. And for us, we've got to be willing to give up our security and our comfort zone to be willing to launch out with the Lord by faith and trust to do what he wants us to do. Not clutching so much to the things we have and the things we know, but being willing to relinquish our grasp on anything to to serve God. Abraham's tremendous in this. And how did he live in this land? Yeah, he's constantly a foreigner, and what does he live in? Intense in a foreign land. You see how, you know, he has nothing. He doesn't have a homeland, he doesn't have a permanent dwelling place. He's, he's, a, he's a pilgrim. I hated living in Brazil. I love what the Lord was able to do there and is able to do there, and I'm thankful, and I thank Him almost every day I've been, I'm able to be a part of that, but I hated living there because I always felt like a foreigner. I always felt out of place. I always felt like I wasn't at home. You know, it's just, you just always felt tense. I never completely relaxed. I've talked to others who've done similar things, and some of them have felt that. Um, think about Abraham. <laughs> I mean, he was always, you know, from elsewhere, just traveling through. He finally got a cave to bury Sarah, and that's all he really ever owned. You know, just living in a tent. <laughs> you know, abandoning the security of his family of the city where he'd come from and all of that. 
And isn't he a lot like us? We are not at home. We better not be at home. And we might all be better off if we'd lived in tents. You know, because it's so easy for us to put down our roots and settle down. And just think of ourselves as belonging. And then we try to fit in. And all of that. Abraham's a wonderful example. And, and really, if you think about this, isn't this what the writer of Hebrews is calling them to do? Look over at chapter 13 and uh, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we do not have a lasting city. We are seeking the city which is to come. Really, Abraham illustrates what they are to do. Go outside of the comfort zone, the security of Judaism, outside the camp, outside of what they know, outside of their families and friends' approval, and dwell insecurely with no lasting place here. You know, I know it seems ridiculous they would want to go back to Judaism, but that security, that's their friends, that's their family, that's, that's something solid in this life to hold on to. He's saying, go out, go out, go out, outside the camp, outside of your comfort zone, outside of your support network. Bearing his reproach, you're not going to have anything solid and secure here. So Abraham is an excellent model for what he's asking them to do. And really for what he asks us to do if we can rise up to that challenge. Comments and thoughts about all that? Many of us recently listened to uh, Peter Wilson prayer tapes and and I think the last lesson talked about the prayer of faith and he talked about Abraham and he talked about the fact that God didn't come to him and say Abraham we've done the market research and uh, we know that things are going to be so much better for you in Canaan and uh, all these guarantees and that isn't the way it happened Uh, he, he reminds us in his lesson and that you know he asked God, where is he going? He said, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and everything he asked, him said, just, you know, just do what I asked you to do. And that's exactly what he did. And so, this is, this is a good reminder of that. We want to have guarantees. We want to know all the details. How's this going to be, how's this going to work out? How, how are we going to do this? What's going to be the consequences? We want all this... We want everything built in with, with security and, you know, checks and double checks and whatever to just launch out. God says, so that's what we do. And we have no idea where we're going. We're just trusting Him. Wow. That's Abraham. That's faith. We want to see it before we go. And God said, no, you just got to trust me and go.
It's really great. I mean, that that's our challenge. This reminds me of what you talked about last night with Daniel and how he was in a foreign land and they're trying to indoctrinate him to be like the Chaldeans. And I like your point how we are in the same circumstances. We're in a foreign land, but being indoctrinated for this land and this sort of pulls you back from that. <coughs> Anything through verse 10? There are huge translational questions on 11. The New American Standard, I don't uh, prefer. Anybody got the NIV? Yeah, I got it right here. Okay, cool. The NIV is better, I believe, in this passage, though this is a complex issue textually and translationally and interpretationally. Thankfully, it doesn't make a lot of difference. But if you look at your New American Standard and let Shane read the NIV, you will see something that needs them out different. Go ahead. Shane. Yes, verse 11. 11 and 12. 11 12. Day after day, every priest stands and performs no. his religion. No, you're, this is 11. Yeah, 11. Right. That really was different. Yeah, I was like, well, <laughs> I it was right. By faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand of a seashore. That makes more sense. Wow. Yes. It is just really complicated. There is a huge amount of textual variation on this. There are some grammatical considerations in this, but I think that's better. Um, and, you know, it's been a while since I worked through all that, uh, but I, I do think that's superior. This is still about Abram. That's the big change. Uh, it has to do with how you take the clause about Sarah. And what they're doing is taking the clause about Sarah as kind of a subordinate clause to Abram. So the NIV again, by faith, Abram, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. The NASB sees Sarah as the subject here. This is Sarah's faith. But I think it is better to see it as Abram. Uh, and, you know, you can, you can work through the evidence. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty complicated, but I think this is a pretty strong case for the NIV translation here. Um, and if that's the case, then this is Abram's faith to believe that he and Sarah will have a child. Now, why is that so difficult to believe? Because of his age, and he's as good as dead. Yeah, and Sarah herself is barren. You know, this is an impossibility. Have you ever seen a 90-year-old barren woman have a child? You know, c conviction of things not seen. Something totally out of experience, out of the realm of human possibility, and Abram believed because God said. Faith is belief in what God says regardless of our own experiences, regardless of what we can see. He considered God faithful who had promised. He believed what God said. 
And so what happened? And more descendants. Uh, to what point? <laughs> As the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. God's blessing is beyond human calculation. You can't even count them all. And that's because he had faith against all human evidence based upon his trust in God's word, though he'd never seen it. And that faith was still blessing years after Abram was dead. So Abraham, by faith, left his homeland and dwelt in tents. By faith, he became a father. He trusted God's promise. Abram's faith is amazing. Is it any wonder he is presented as a model of faith for us? Who would believe in these things? Comments and questions? The catty human side of me says, yeah, he had faith, but first he tried to fix things himself and ended up with Ishmael. But it's reassuring to me that God doesn't throw that back in his face. That God holds him up as a model even though he wasn't a perfect person by any means. And that gives me more confidence and faith too. That when God says he won't remember our sins, he really won't. You know? And perhaps Abram is the illustration of some of, of, of God working in his life to build a man of faith. He was not so strong in his faith at some points. But God used those things and worked with him and led him to develop a faith that will ultimately sacrifice Isaac. I don't think he had that kind of faith. But he grew to have that kind of faith. And even what happened with Hagar and Ishmael, I think actually helped Abram see the need to trust God more because it didn't work out well at all when they tried to rely on their own scheme to accomplish God's plan. But you're right. Abraham is not perfect. But he's, he's an example of what God can do in making a man of faith. Some of the challenges we face, face and even some of the falls we take are the building materials of God developing someone to trust him more. And, and, and you know, if Abram had, had, you know, not gotten up from those falls and not accepted God's challenges, he'd have never been a guy who would have sacrificed Isaac. Good point. Other comments and thoughts through 12? You know what it makes me think about you know, this man has his great faith to leave his country to, to have faith that he didn't know where he was going. And, uh, you know, in, in the end, almost sacrificed his son. Yeah, I came have faith in God and get me through temptation. I would have enough faith to help me get through the hard times, which are, which are nothing like this. And it shows how little faith I have, how little trust I have. And I will never be at that, I don't think I'll ever be at that point to be able to trust God. But our work should be that way, to work, to, to be able to trust God no matter what, have faith that he'll get you through those things. And God can use the 
challenges in our life to build our faith. When we step forward to act on faith, it's like using any muscle to get stronger. And uh, we need to accept those challenges. Look at 13 to 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So together with others, Abraham died in faith, looking forward to the promises his whole life, seeing himself as a stranger and exile on the earth. And um, Abraham said something sort of similar to that back in uh, Genesis 23 when he was talking about burying uh, Sarah in 23 verse 4 I am a stranger and a sojourner among you but the point that the Hebrew writer makes here is that when he calls himself a stranger and a pilgrim an exile he's not just thinking of Herod because he could have gone back there if that's what he wanted. He's really seeing himself in more spiritual terms as being a stranger in exile from heaven. And um, seeing himself as having heaven as the true homeland, a, a heavenly city. Now, are we willing to live as strangers and pilgrims? Are we willing to live with insecurity? Are we willing to live in a tent? Are we willing to live without knowing what the future will be? Just trusting God? Or will we go back to what's more secure? To where our family and friends are? To where it's all comfortable and cozy? And where we're accepted? And where everybody likes us? Now, Abram could have gone back. He makes that point. You know, he would have had opportunity to return. He didn't go back. And again, that's his point to the Hebrews. Don't go back. Yes, you want to go back. You'll be leaving so much. You'll be leaving these promises that Abraham followed by faith. But you want to go back because you can see where you're going. You can see where you are. You've got your support. You've got your security. Everybody approves of that. But, but no, they were willing to be strangers and exiles and not go back. I wrote down, we must press on and trust toward the heavenly city rather than turning back to retake our place in earthly society. We are so tempted to want to fit in here, to want to belong here, to want to be accepted here, to wanting to have security here. And what Abraham and the patriarchs say is press forward without that, looking forward to the promises, awaiting by faith the heavenly city and not Trusting in uh, here. Now, these are really strong statements in context. So applicable to them and so applicable to us. And we've got to challenge ourselves so much more. 
Where is our home? I, I know that I am too much at home here. I need to feel here like I did in Brazil. You know, there wasn't a day in Brazil that I didn't look forward to going home. There's not a day on a trip I take. I don't look forward to coming home. How many days are there where I don't look forward to going home? Where I'm too secure and I refuse the challenges of the Lord to move forward and move out on faith because I want to be comfortable and I want to be secure. Comments and questions. <clears throat> kind of reminds me of what we were saying before about, I can't remember who brought the point, but that's why I said something to the effect of, why would the Hebrews want to go back to the old law? The new law was so much better. You know, why would they want to go back to the old law? Why would they want to turn their backs on the new law when it's so much better than the old law? Why would we want to come back to this world when we got such a greater reward waiting for us? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Because we can see it. And we can't see that reward. And without faith, we have no confidence and conviction to do what we can't see. That's the issue. We need to have faith to endure and not shrink back. It's exactly what it amounts to. What are the promises that he's referring to in 13? Without receiving the promises. Well, I think in part the great nation of the land, but probably more the blessing that would come to his descendant that would involve the true heavenly city that they were looking forward to. Does that then refer only back to Abraham? And his descendants? I think in the context that's who he's talking about. But we need to press forward to our great and precious promises as well. In like 1036, that you may receive what was promised. Right, I guess I was just looking at that going all the way back to Enoch and Noah and you know, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. Was that referring to them also? That doesn't fit with the promise to Abraham necessarily, or is that just more of a general of uh, the promise? I'm not sure about that. I've taken it as referring to verse 12, Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. But I don't know for sure about that. It's possible that it goes back further. But all of his descendants haven't died. <laughs> yes, yes. I've always thought that the promise that they've seen from a distance was Christ. I, I've always considered that it pointed forward to Christ. Yeah, it definitely points forward to Christ, at least primarily, and to the, the blessings that come through Christ. I forgot to turn my uh, ringer off. I don't the ones I like. Other comments and questions through 16. Seventeen to nineteen. 
By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who has received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received them back as a type. Which is surely the high point of Abraham's faith. Wow. Um, and he makes the point, really, in verses 17 and 18, that when... Abraham mentally sacrificed Isaac, what was he really sacrificing? Not just his son, per se. Promise? Yes! He's sacrificing the very promises God made. This seems contrary to God's promise that through Isaac, all these blessings would come. How do you do that? How do you sacrifice the very promise God makes? Faith obeys because God said it. God said do it. He believed that he could trust God to discharge his responsibility faithfully in this matter and he just assumed well it must be God will raise him from the dead. It's the only thing he could think. Do you have the faith to trust God not only when you have to sacrifice your past, but when you have to sacrifice your future. This is sacrificing everything. Had he ever seen a resurrection? As far as we know, he hadn't. But he believes, he believes in one because God will be faithful to his promise and God said to sacrifice my son that he's promised all these blessings to we have that kind of trust in God. We do what he says, even when what he says seems so contradictory to what we think he would want. When it just doesn't make sense. And you wonder, how would he explain this to Sarah? <laughs> She's never going to believe this. Abraham had to just look totally demented to the everyday person. And you remember when God made that, told him to do that. Remember when he did it? When did he do it? Right away. He got up early that morning, gathered the wood and went. He got to the place. He took Isaac. He built the altar. He bound Isaac on the altar. And he puts his knife ready to kill his son. Can you do that? Can you do that? How could you do that? What tremendous faith in God. Did you just do that? He's willing to do anything God said because he had faith that God would fulfill his promise. He is, now, I want you to see something. You know, when God tells Abraham or me something. We do not know how this fits into the big picture. We just know the order we get. Do you understand how this fits into the big picture? Among other things, this is the perfect type of the father sacrificing his son. This gives us Something that helps us so much in understanding the emotions of God as he sacrifices Jesus. Because I can feel with Abraham, you know, killing his son Isaac. It reminds me of, of passages like Romans chapter 8. 
and verse 32 talking about the absolute love of God. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Just as God told Abraham, now I know you love me. This is the greatest possible proof of love. But how could Abraham ever know that his going through with this up to the point where God figuratively grabbed his hand, how could he ever know that this was to play such an important role as a foreshadowing of the greatest event in the history of the world? He doesn't know that. He doesn't know what God's trying to do. He has no way of knowing what God's trying to do. He has to trust by faith that when God says it, it's the right thing to do and we do it. It's just amazing. It's such an example for us. He's saying to these brethren, you are doing things that are hard. You are doing things that seem totally contrary to everything you ought to do. You are doing things that that involve very painful sacrifices. You see how, how it worked out for Abraham? Because he trusted God. There are very few chapters in the Bible more powerful than Hebrews chapter 11. You know, these are, wow, this is an amazing, this is just amazing in context to think through and then to apply. Comments? I think your statement about God, this being a good example, Abraham of God building a man of faith, and this being the high point of his faith, he no doubt was able to look back on all the times when God had proven to him that if you'll just do what I say, it will turn out right. And then he was able then to see God in the current circumstance and without having to wait 10 years and looking back to see God working in that instant, he could see it right then. And that's what enabled him to envision a God who could raise from the dead, even though that was probably as far out there as anything else. Um, Psalm 18 makes similar uh, points about language that David uses about God's ability to deliver when those experiences that David describes God as working as did not evidently come into his own life. But David saw God working in the lives of others. So therefore he could say, that's the God who's going to deliver me. And that's what we have to see. We have to see that God is absolutely trustworthy. No matter what he asks. No matter how just incredibly painful and unreasonable it seems. And we just trust him. He had already asked Abraham to give up his past when Abraham left his home. And now he's asking Abraham to give up his future. And Abraham doesn't. And he's asked these Hebrews to give up their past and to give up their future earthly hopes because they trust Him. And He wants us to serve Him without compromise, 
because he is trustworthy. You don't understand why he says what he says. You don't know how it's going to work out. But he said it. We do it. That's the faith we need to press on. together here and you know to see clearly how these events have shaped history and how they affected others and I think in our own lives sometimes we wonder why things happen to us why is this all about me when it may not be about me at all I may just be a tool in God's hand for something else and someone else challenge is to trust when we have no idea what the whole puzzle looks like. <laughs> well, I think this is a good stopping point and just a really uh, great uh, great passage for us to think about. Why don't we uh, close with a prayer? Our Father, you are worthy of our trust and our faith. You have proven yourself. We admire what you did with Abraham. We are inspired to greater faith and trust and commitment to you by him. There are many times we don't understand. Help us trust. Help us believe. Help us commit ourselves. Help us to act with no security, with no human reasoning that makes it make sense. Help us to have the radical commitment to launch out with trust and faith just because of your word. We look forward to the fulfillment of your great promises. We ask you to challenge us, to strengthen us, as you see that we can handle it, that we can grow to be people who glorify you like Abraham did. Thank you so much for what we've read and studied today. We are constantly inspired by the power of your word. You are a great God, worthy of all praise, and so worthy of our trust. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.